Some people seem to move almost effortlessly from planning into action, but appearances can be deceiving. It all comes down to having a process that works for you. I'm your host, M. David Green. Hack the Process is a show about looking at the systems and processes that we build our lives around to support mindful, meaningful progress. This show explores ways that people get past that pivot point, from having a fantasy to putting something real out there into the world. If you're ready to stop planning and fantasizing and start taking action, let's hack the process together. It can be hard to realize your own power, and even harder to make effective use of it without some objective feedback. Ron Carucci had already taught at Fordham University, written several books, and co-founded Navalent, a successful leadership consulting firm, when he realized he needed a coach himself. In this episode of Hack the Process, Ron will discuss the advantages of co-authoring books and co-founding companies, tell us about how he learned to become visible to his ideal audience, and share his favorite ways to cut through the information clutter online to find the most valuable resources. Today I'm speaking with Ron Carucci, and he is the author of eight books and a business consultant and a speaker. And Ron, how are you doing today? Doing great, David. It's so great to be with you. It's really good to meet you today. And I've been reading about your career, and I've been seeing all of the things you've been doing. You've got so many different things going on. How do you usually introduce yourself these days? <laughs> As tired. <laughs> <laughs> this is Ron Carucci. He's tired. <laughs> Mostly, I'm a managing partner of the firm Navalent, a small consulting firm that spends our days accompanying leaders through the throes of wild transformational journeys. We get the privilege of joining leaders at the most noble and challenging moments in their careers as they face the daunting challenge of change. That's how we spend our days. Wow. That sounds like an exciting thing to do. And also, you, you have to have a lot of confidence to step into a role like that. Confidence helps. I think self-honesty is also, you have to know as you, your limitations as much as you have to know your abilities as well, because not every transformational journey can succeed. Not every leader is capable of going where you want to push them. And so I think it's an interesting blend of our voices between how to lean in and push a leader beyond where they're comfortable and how to know when to pull back and know that we have to step back, reflect, rethink, because these journeys are, you know, they're tumultuous, they're turbulent, and they're very visible. These leaders are very vulnerable, and I mean, most leaders don't realize the degree to which their lives play out on the jumbotron. <laughs> Absolutely. I'm really curious. How did you prepare yourself for what you're doing these days? Gosh, I, you know, so I've done this for 30 years. You, I think you're always preparing yourself. You know, you're always refining your own voice, refining your own instrument, refining your own skill set. You know, I mean, my formal training is in organizational behavior, but academic credentials can only go so far. I think most people, as they graduate grad school, realize, wow, that didn't really help a whole lot. But I think at the end of the day, all I have when I'm sitting before an executive who's leading 30,000 people or 30 people is me. To them, the body of knowledge, the body of tools, the body of skills I and my firm bring are really irrelevant. They put me into that very sacred space, assuming that I've got all that. They don't need to know about it. They just need to know in that moment when I give them advice, when I give them a solution, when I encourage they and their leaders or their organization to make some very difficult choices, that it's founded in some basic set of tools and theory and experience set and patterns I've seen across many organizations and industries, but they don't need to know all that. They need to remain fixated on the organization in front of them. I've always felt like the uh, academic education that you get, it provides you with sort of a library of resources you know what to tap into, but then you have to apply that in an experiential way to the situation that you happen to be in. And gosh, I, David, I wish more graduate schools would would tell the truth about that when they're teaching it and give students during their training 
the opportunity to do that. I mean, there are you're seeing more practicums and more required, you know, internship experiences for people to, to bridge that white ivory tower theory to the real world. But too often, I still hear too many MBA students and even OD school students come out and say, they never told me that, or this wasn't in my training, or I wasn't ready for the real world when I got out here. It's too many sentiments like that. And when you were you know, exporting by the droves these young, promising students with hundreds of thousands of dollars of debt, and somewhat self-assured that the training had prepared them for more than just book knowledge or more than to know what library to go to to get a book to read. We have to get better at that. We really have to get better at that. I know that you used to teach organizational behavior, right? Yeah. I spent about 15 years teaching at Fordham University in New York City. And then I spent five years here at the, in Seattle at the Seattle School teaching leadership. So I've sat in front of many aspiring young professionals getting their master's degrees who have great desires to make impact. They have great desires to train themselves and prepare themselves for careers of great impact. And the program I was in in New York that I taught in was very practically applied. Only practitioners were faculty. These were people in the workplace who had to leave your classroom that day and go out back to work. And their workplaces who were paying for the degree usually expected them to be able to come back all throughout their degree and be able to apply what they were learning. And we made sure they could. So early in your career when you were teaching, did you actually have any practical experience or were you teaching from more of a theoretical background? No, no. I, I was actually – I had been a practitioner for probably 10, 15 years before I started teaching grad school. Uh-huh. Nobody on the faculty of the program that I taught in was just an academic. Everybody was a full-time practitioner and taught in the program and could bring in their real-world experiences and real-time cases and real-time client stories and put them in front of the, the students and have them work in real time with real issues. Well, I'd love to dig into that a little bit more because I know a lot of the people who listen to this podcast, they're interested in how people get started in what they're doing, how they get over that hurdle from getting an idea to actually putting something out into the world. So what were you doing in practical life that prepared you to teach? Well, that's a, it's a great question. It won't sound like it's relevant, but my first career was in the arts. I trained in undergrad and early undergrad and trained even before that to work in commercial arts and commercial theater. And I learned, fortunately, very early in my career that I bored easily. And so, you know, I was in my first year of undergrad getting these phenomenal jobs that my friends would look at me with great envy and I'd be thinking, I have to do the same thing eight times a week for how long? And I, you know, that was a a private shame that I realized I don't think this is going to be a good career for me. I may be good at it and I've done it since I was 10 years old. So I, it just seemed like the thing I should go do. My parents wanted me to go into pre-med. I was the last one of five. We didn't have a doctor yet, so that's what they wanted. <laughs> but I, a couple of years into undergrad, I, I was at Juilliard training. I went, I left to go to NYU. Then I changed majors, and I knew that I was restlessly not comfortable. But in a wonderful moment, I, I took a job with a company that used media and arts to do all kinds of things. And I went over to Europe for a few years. And they had a contract with the State Department and the military to do all kinds of programs for them. And that was made it a little more interesting. And, and in one very important moment that, you know, in most of our careers, those moments only become important in retrospect. But we were at Dachau and in the chapel of Dachau doing a program on the word diversity and inclusion. And I, those were not terms back then. But if they were terms, that would have been the topic of the workshop. But it was how to deal with differences, how to, how to appreciate. The Iron Curtain hadn't fell yet, but we still had East Germans and West Germans and Americans and civilians and military in this room. To talk about at some point, how are we going to figure out how to appreciate how we were all different? And at one point in the program, a young soldier stood up, an American soldier, and through deep pain said, I'm just so tired of being trained to hate. And I was at that point leading the discussion, and I was, you know, he probably was maybe a year or two older than me. I was in my early 20s. 
my first thought was, you know, because most of us in our 20s are self-centered, I can't believe something I did up here made him think that. But beyond that, I thought, I want to know more about what he, I was, I want to know, like, what do you mean by that? And so we talked a little bit more and he was very generous and vulnerable for the room. But afterwards, we went out for a beer. Because I was just so fascinated by the story and the connection of what he had seen in the front of the room to what his own life experience was. And I think for me, David, that moment was a realization that telling great stories is really an interesting thing to do. But entering other people's stories and helping them discover their story, that was far more fascinating and life-giving for me and far less boring. And probably something I was going to enjoy more for a career than just telling great stories. And I think that moment was the moment I'd you know, unbeknownst to me in the time, but the moment my career began to move in the direction it went. Having a realization like that, it begs the question, how do you make a career out of helping people tell their stories? At the time, we didn't have names for it, like life coaching or therapists or whatever. You know, I came back to America and found out that there's actually a whole field called organizational behavior that does that for groups. When I went to grad school, I started my grad school year in clinical psych, thinking that I, you know, that might be interesting. But then I realized I don't have the patience to deal with everybody's individual crap. So I went into org behavior, and I quickly learned that they all bring their crap to work with them anyway. So I wasn't going to get away from it. But I think what I mean by that is, you know, when you enter a community or you enter an organization or you enter a team or even a leader's life, you're entering their story. They don't always know the origins of their own story. They don't even always know how they're even authoring their own story. And sometimes they're not. Sometimes they put the pen down and forfeited their own story. And so... I get to help them pick up the pen and rethink the next chapter, be honest about the story as it's been before now in their organization or their team or their their life, and help make hard choices about what the next chapters of their story will be. It sounds like the psychological training would be very useful in a situation like that. It's absolutely true, David. And it's one of the things I find frustrating about the hack of coaching these days. It's become so cliche. Everybody's a coach. But too many people are coaches because somebody said to them, wow, you're so passionate. You should be giving people advice. Or, wow, you're so inspiring. You should hang out at Shingle and be a coach. Or, you're so patient. You give such good advice. You should be a consultant. Or you got laid off, you're fired, you have no job, be a consultant. But those people don't understand and appreciate when they're sitting in front of somebody, you're looking at pathologies. You're looking at real clinical issues. You're looking at deep transference. You're triggering all kinds of tapes in people's lives. You have to know what you're looking at. You can't just that's, you can't just wing it. And so I wish people were more clinically adept and trained and at least more oriented to understand human behavior, human motivation, not just the pop psychology book they read you know, last year that now they can spout quotes from. Well, now you got your training through studying organizational behavior as a, as a graduate student then. Do you feel that you've gotten that kind of training that you needed? Not from my graduate program entirely, no. I've gone on since then to get some licenses and some certificates, and, I, and I'm a voracious reader. I'm also an, a, a natural experimenter. I naturally want to incline to learn and try new things. For me, you know, re- recognizing that for me, my voice is never perfect. So two years ago, I hired a coach for me. And so a wonderfully credible and deeply skilled woman who has helped me think about the next phase of my career and my voice and how I want to use it in the world. So I think we're never done learning. We should never feel like we've arrived anywhere. And as the good news is with a plethora of information out there, yes, there's a lot of garbage, but there's a lot of deep, rich, insightful thinkers out there thinking about this stuff that we can avail ourselves from. And there's online courses. There's all kinds of ways to consume new ideas and adapt our behavior. So I think people who aren't availing themselves of that who are in the business of influencing change of some kind and aren't continually refining themselves to do that are dangerous people. 
the challenge, I think, is just how much volume of information there is out there and how little capacity we have to process all of it. I'm curious how you've filtered through what you read and what you've researched to find the resources that you found useful. It's a great question, David, because you're right. There's a lot of noise out there and a lot of crap. You know, I honestly, I don't know if, if you'll bleep out if I swear, but I think a lot of people have great bullshit barometers. Mm-hmm. And you just, two or three sentences into somebody's blog, you can go, okay, this is crap. But I also think, you know, there are the, like, Manfred Ketavriz, right? He's just a brilliant clinician and coach and thoughtful man, and you can just trust what he writes. And so I think that there are time-tested thinkers out there and up-and-coming thinkers who you know aren't one-hit wonders and hacks. They've done the work. They've been thoughtful. And it, it doesn't always correlate to having a big following either. You know, you, you may have a 500,000 Twitter followers. doesn't mean you're bright. <laughs> just means you're popular. And so I, I think people have to find for themselves. And, and the other thing that's really important is you have to contextualize. You have to not think about who your own starstruck wonder of who, who do I want to be attached to or who do I want to be like or emulate, but who do you want to help? And so you have to think about the people you want to influence and the context in they're in and find the information that will best help you there, not who you want to be associated with. We all want to hang on the coattails of today's guru du jour, but that doesn't help us become better. Right? And so I think it's important that we all come clean with our own motives for wanting to influence. Is it because I want to be associated with a certain set of people? Because I really want to make a difference. Well, one thing I'd love to find out is, are there any hidden gems out there, people that you've discovered who have really great resources and information that you'd recommend to some of our listeners? Yeah. So I, she's not a hidden gem, but if you're looking to start your own business or start your own practice or refine your own voice in the world, Dory Clark is a wonderful thought leader. She wrote a book called Entrepreneur You. It just came out. She wrote a book called Stand Out, How to Build a Following Around Your Ideas. She's really thoughtful. She's got a couple of great TED Talks and lots of great resources and free and free tools and free assessment tools at her website. So she's a great resource. You know, Manfred Kittavries is a great timeless if you really want to get more clinical about your coaching and really understand the depths of human psyche and behavior. He's written he wrote a book called Mindful Coaching last year. Brilliant book. Leader on the Couch is a great book. Organizations on the Couch. You know, he really has connected the the true pathological roots of systems and human behavior with how you change those. So he is a great resource. Scott Anthony wrote a book called Dual Transformation, really rich, insightful book. If you're looking to be more more influential in terms of how you use your own voice, Kim Scott's new book, Radical Candor, is a great book, great tool. So I think they're out there. I think there's lots of good thought leaders out there. The way I think you can tell, David, is look at their track record. Look at their journey. And if their journey mirrors the journey they're prescribing, that's a good sign. <laughs> that makes a lot of sense. And I know you've also written a bunch of books. And you, know, you must have felt at the time that you wrote those that the information wasn't out there and you needed to add it to the mix. I'm curious how that got started for you. Yeah, it's a great, great, great question. You know, right, I, so I don't make my living as an author, which my publishers hate. And my writing is more about my own learning. You know, usually there's some persistent problem that my clients can't get at, and I don't have a way to help them. I, I, it's, you know, some intractable, stuck issue that I want to go learn about. I don't understand. I, my own gut says, God, we should be able to do better than this. Or this shouldn't be an issue. Why can't we fix this? And so my own research leads me down the path of trying to figure out what the heck and all of my books have been some progression of what the heck. The last book, Rising to Power, was a personal one. So 10 years ago, I wrote a book called Leadership Divided. We didn't have the term millennials then, but it was emerging leaders. And I was t- tired of the labels of thinking that somehow the year you were born as a boomer or an Xer or a millennial meant something. And I was tired of these labels thinking that this, this can't really mean something. 
this really can't, these categories are cute, but they're hurting the problem. They're hurting the conversation. They're dividing us further. What's really going on here? You know, we discovered that this really, it really is about relationship, you know, and understanding the differences across generations. Well, we've now watched that set of millennials now aggressively and accelerate their careers into very senior C-suite roles and fail. Quickly, we've known for 20 years that those that arrive in broader roles of influence in their organizations fail within their first 18 months. And that's odd to me. I understand why the recruiters love it because it's an annuity, but that we've accepted that as okay hurts. Well, when it became somebody that we work with, some leader in one of our transformational efforts that risen up, seen as high potential, seen as great promising future leader, was put in a job and nine months later called, and I thought he was calling to say how great things were going. He called me to tell me he was fired. And the CEO called two hours later angry saying we had to let him go. And I think part of it's your fault because you didn't get him ready. And I was devastated. I'm like, well, can we come back in to find out what went wrong here? Like how could we have so badly misjudged? How could somebody that was seen as so phenomenal and so promising suddenly be a disaster in nine months? Made no sense. Well, that led us to a 10-year longitudinal study of more than 2,700 people to find out that that young leader who's gone on to have a great career now, but to find out that he was just another, another statistic, just one more person who'd been set up to fail. I went back to that CEO and I said, I will take full responsibility for not warning him about and preparing him for all the landmines he was going to face. You need to take responsibility for putting them there. And so rising to power was about this is cruel. What we're doing to these people is cruel. And this is these are families, these are careers, these are missed opportunities. We can do better. There is no reason that when we put people on these paths to ascend broader perches that we can't help them succeed. These landmines don't need to be there. And the great part about the research was that we were able to isolate the things in the 50% of those that actually succeeded at the top, what it was they were doing on their way up and once they got there that helped them be so powerful. And so we can learn those. It's a high bar, but we can learn them. So for us, it was about, okay, we got to cut this out. This is terrible. It's expensive. It's cruel. We can do better. It, but it wasn't to sell a lot of books. It wasn't to sort of go out there and say, hey, let's promote this book. I was, we were humbled when the research was named by HBR as one of 2016's ideas, ideas that mattered most. It did hit number one on Amazon. We were shocked by that. Just yesterday, my TED Talk on power came out for the public. And so it's been, it's been really humbling and rewarding to see the material resonate with people, to see people go, yes, finally somebody's saying this. But it was born, to your, early, your original question, it was born in the facing of an intractable and what felt to me like an unacceptable problem of leaders and influence that we should be able to fix. We shouldn't just tolerate this as okay. I think that an important idea like that, when it starts to, to resonate with people, people will, will discover it. They'll look for that, that answer. And one of the things that I know people have found challenging is when they create something, they put something out into the world, getting people to even recognize that it exists, that it's there. That's, that's difficult. And you've had a great deal of success getting recognition. And you have, and it sounds to me like it was an accidental. And I'm really curious what your process was. So part of the reason I hired my coach, David, was so it doesn't happen. I mean, I, I agree that, yes, there is a viralness about good ideas, but it's crowded out there. It's really crowded. And if you want it to be a thought leader, having the thoughts doesn't make you a thought leader. In fact, I would encourage if your readers are interested in their own thought leadership, I wrote a really fun piece on LinkedIn on my LinkedIn page called The Challenges of Being a Thought Leader Are Different Than You Think. And it's not enough to have the good ideas. Take away the 80% of the noise that, that, that really is crap. But 20% of a lot is still a lot of great ideas, really thoughtful, well-conceived, well-constructed, well-expressed ideas. There's a lot of them. So finding your following, finding your audience, finding how to get your ideas heard among all that noise is a lot of work. And it's not just about writing them down. 
Well, so what I want to ask you then is what was that work? What did you do to, in order to find that audience? So, I'm, and I'm still finding them. <laughs> and, they're, and, they're, and they're not finding me as quickly as I would like them to. But you and I are chatting for that very reason, right? So that's part of the reason why I'm chatting with you. But, you know, how you use social media, how you bring your thoughts to other channels. So I, I wrote for Forbes and I write for HBR now. How you build a blog and build an email list and curate a community of followers with ideas that you know matter to them. How you create and cultivate ideas for who you want them to have. Too many thought leaders think up ideas that they find fascinating but are not thinking about an audience. They're not thinking about who needs to use this and how are they going to read it. They, they, they just think, you know, if I write it, they will come. And that's not the case at all. The ability to actually create a platform and work at it. So many people want this to happen overnight. I, I put it out there and the next day I had 27 hits. Why, why, why didn't I have 5 million hits the next day? And then a week later I had 300. Why, why wasn't it 20 million? We, we had this terrible this social media influencer world and Snapchat and, and Instagram. And we see these things happening for people who are, you know, are young and teenagers and have no platform. And we see them having instant fame and instant influence, and we think, well, why can't I have that? It's just not how it works. And it was never how it works, right? The, you know, the hard-won platforms are people you actually want in your community to curate content for, who will call you eventually and want your help and ideas. Those are carefully crafted over many, many years. And it can be very easily get, easy to get overwhelmed and think, it's too late. Why bother? As my coach says to me, too many people die on Heartbreak Hill. They get a year, year and a half in of what needs to be a three or four year journey. And they decide this is too hard. It's too much work. It's not working. And it's exhausting. And, I, and in that piece, I'm linked in how to, you know, the challenges of being a thought leader are different than you think. I talk about the emotional toll, the psychological toll. It takes your own second guessing, your own discouragement, your own proclivity to unhealthily compare to others. You know, he got 18,000 hits on that piece in two days and it's a piece of garbage. Look at my piece and I only got 2,000. And you, you just, it's just you can't do any of that. You're tempted to, but you shouldn't. The emotional toll to stick it through, to be tenacious, to be resolved, that you really believe in your ideas and your own voice and the efficacy of what you have to say and you stick with building a platform until you eventually get to that place where you have curated a great community of people who want to hear what you have to say, but it's not overnight. It's true. And if you have millions of followers overnight, probably they're not the specific followers that you want anyway. David, say it again. You Say it again. It's the truth. People don't realize what you said. It's gold, what you said. Listeners, what he just said. It's self-indulgent. It feels so good. It's just not real. No, exactly. So we'll definitely be putting a link to that article in the show notes for this episode. It sounds to me like this is something that may have come out of your coaching and something that you've picked up not only over, over the years of work, but also something you've picked up in the last couple of years. Most of the last couple of years. <laughs> That's when I called my coach, I was at a really discouraged place. I was at a, you know, Rising to Power had come out. It had done very well. It was getting great reviews. And the phone wasn't ringing. I, you know, I was writing some articles. We hired a very expensive publicist, got some great exposure through that. But publicity is not the same as a platform. I was like, okay, at this point in my career, fundamentally where, what it came down to, David, was I wanted to work with greater, great clients. I could not work with one more sociopath. <laughs> I just could not work with one more woman or man who was so self-involved that they were hurting people. I don't want to help. I, on the journey from moron to phenomenal, I don't want to go from moron to marginally damaging anymore. Somebody should do that work. I don't want to be to be me. I want to go from phenomenal to really phenomenal or really okay to really, really good. But I want to be on that end of That's where I want to spend. I don't have many years left in my career. That's where I want to spend it because I think we get exponentially more for that. But those were not leaders that were finding me as much as I wanted them to. And it was the sociopaths that were calling. And I thought, do I have a magnet on my back that says, 
you know, find me. And I didn't understand why. I didn't understand why is it that these ideas are resonating, but not with enough people to actually attract us to each other to work together. And it turns so when my coach did her diagnostic work on me, turns out I wasn't doing any of the things that you would do to attract the right, those right kinds of clients, to use your words, the kinds of people you want to be with. Not only wasn't I, I wasn't even close. I wasn't even in the same orbit of doing those. I didn't even know what they were. And that was a shock. And then you have to swallow hard and go, am I willing to take on this learning curve at this point in my career? I've got a 30-year career. I've got a very successful firm. We're doing fine. This is now going to – like not starting over, but you're starting a brand new bottom of the S-curve here. Are you ready for that? Well, thank God she didn't tell me any of the things we we're going to do because I probably would have said – I would have said no. So I, I said, OK, let's go. I'll, and early on, if she had told me on the front end, in the next two years, here's all the things I'm going to have you do, I would have said – uh, oh, honey, you're out of your mind. Thank you, but not for me. I, so I just followed blindly, and she was very careful in how she dosed the assignments. Well, I'm curious. What were some of the challenging things that you would not have even signed up for if you'd known them in advance? So here's a great example. So the, Early on, she said one of her diagnostic findings was your echo chamber is very small, and you only talk to people who know you. Why don't you learn to face out? Why don't you turn around and face out to the world that doesn't know you? Why aren't you writing for Forbes? Why aren't you writing for HBR? Your writing is that good. That's where you can be found. I'm like, well, sure. But I'm sure if I just pick up the phone and call Forbes and HBR and say, hey, I want to write for you. They're not going to take my phone call. She said, well, no, of course not. But I'm going to introduce you to the editors. I assume you want me to do that, don't you? I'm like, oh, that's how this works? <laughs> okay. Next thing I knew, I'm signing a contract with Forbes to be a contributor and in a conversation with an editor with HBR and getting my first piece published. And so we're sitting in the Harvard Club in New York City doing our – we do quarterly strategy sessions, right? And she's telling me, okay, so these great premium kinds of thoughtful, good-hearted clients you want to find, give me examples of two of them. Tell me stories of two that you've had in your life that if you could have 20 more of those, you'd be thrilled. Okay. So I start telling them a story of these two clients that you know were multi-year journeys for us. Love them. I'd pay to have clients like that if I could. And she's taking feverish notes. And I think, oh, what a great consultant. She's taking good notes, just like we all do. So after about 45, 50 minutes of telling these two very detailed, and she would ask probing questions, what'd you do next or what'd you say next? And she's typing. She turns her laptop around. She says, okay, so there's your first year's editorial calendar at Forbes. I'm like, what? So she was taking the stories of what I was telling her and turning them into how to convert them into – so as an example, I, I worked with one CEO who had been a CEO of a phenomenal large company on the East Coast, beloved, been there for 15 years, went to a West Coast client where he was very different, where he was a fish out of water, took it over from private equity. It was in bad shape. He is a very principled man, and his team had a very different set of values than he did, and that was a struggle for him. So one of the posts she, she titled was, How to Lead a Team Who Doesn't Share Your Values. Mm -hmm. I'm like, I could write that in my sleep. <laughs> but it would have never occurred to me to write it. She said, if you want to ha attract those kinds of clients, you have to talk about the things they want to hear about. Which felt like a big duh. So a few months later, she said, okay, so who are the thought leaders? Who are the people in your sphere that you find really meaningful? Like who do, who do you listen to? Whose ideas do you really find meaningful, that you find impacting? I said, well, a lot of people that do it, <laughs> to your point before, people who do what I do are hacks. She goes, okay, yes, but who are the ones you really admire? So I gave her some I sent her, and I have no idea why she's asking. I sent her a list, about six people, of whose books I'd read or whose work had made a mark on my life. She said, great. I want you to call them up and interview them for your Forbes column. Mm -hmm. I said, are you out of your mind? Like Daniel Kahneman was on the list. He's an 80-year-old Nobel Prize winner. He's not going to take my call. She goes, just do it. I said, 
I don't even know where to find them. She goes, they all have websites. Go to the contact form, fill out the form, tell them who you are, tell them what you want. I'm like, are you crazy? I'm not going to make a fool of myself. They're not going to just do it. <laughs> Five of the six said yes to interviews. Wow. And they were amazing experiences. I've written over 55 articles of Forbes, 30 of which are phenomenal interviews with amazing people who are now in my network, who are now part of my colleagues. And if you had told me I was going to interview Daniel Kahneman or John Hyde or Susan Cain, I would have said, that's never going to happen. That's amazing. So one of the things that really stands out for me about that story is the power that a coach brings of being able to look objectively at what you're talking about and mirror it back to you in such a way that it really can be productive. David, we, ha we all need help. We all need help. I don't know. what. In hindsight, why did I wait so long? I don't know. I mean, why would you not want help with anything? There are people out there who's, who spent lots of time building their own expertise. And it was pretty clear. Even the expertise I thought I had, I didn't have. So it was pretty clear I needed help. I didn't know how badly I needed the help. So I started getting it, right? So I just finished two TED Talks. Never would have imagined standing in that red circle. Twice within two weeks was a little much. I don't know that I would have <laughs> signed up for that. Two different talks. I was very naive about how hard that would be. But nonetheless... They're there now, but I think you're my 70-something podcast, but it's phenomenal, but, but it's a lot of work, but you have to know what to do, and oh my gosh, get help. Don't try and do this on your own. There's just no point when there are people out there who are brilliant and insightful and fun and generous and caring who can come alongside you and help. It's true. And frankly, some people need so much help that even a hacky coach can help them at least see themselves from an objective perspective. We are, we are notoriously bad observers of our own reality. We just do not see ourselves in context. We have to have other eyes on us. Self-improvement is not a self-activity. Self-improvement is a community activity. And you need other people's eyes on you to give you honest, caring thoughts about what they're seeing. That's true. Because improvement doesn't happen without a context. And help. <laughs> <laughs> so it sounds like you've found a phenomenal coach. How did you find this person? <laughs> I stalked her on LinkedIn. I found her writing. I found her books. I read her blog. I watched her TED Talk. And then I started stalking her. And she caught me stalking her by saying, hey, Ron, how can I help? <laughs> she caught me. And so I worked up the courage. I uh, worked up the courage. One of the endorsements on her book was she, she was the thought leader of thought leaders. I thought, well, that's a pretty – and it was from you know, Lynch Schlesinger at Harvard. Like, well, that's a pretty big endorsement. So I texted her. I said, hey, do you want to have a chat? She goes, well, let's, let's have a Skype chat. I said, I may have a client for you. I didn't say it was me. <laughs> so I think she probably saw right through that. Anyway, so we had a wonderful Skype chat, and I came clean that it was me, and I told her what I was thinking about. And she was, you know, I mean, right away, you can tell a great consultant, she asks really hard questions, incisive questions, pokey questions to, you know, disrupt you a little bit. And she said, would it be helpful if I put together a proposal of what it might be like to work together? I said, love it. And so she did, and it was a proposal of, of a, you want a good, hearty diagnostic. You, you have to have your MRI on the front end to know what the surgery is going to be, and then six months of coaching. And I said, could we just do the diagnostic first? just to make sure I'm actually helpable before I sign up for her. She said, that's fine. So we just started our third year together. And she's like, are you sure you want to keep going? You don't I, like, I said, I feel like we're just getting started. I don't, this is still not natural to me. I still, I love doing it, but she still gives me feedback on the posts I edit and she gives me good input and she phenomenal networker. And even after two years, I know enough to be dangerous, but I don't feel like this is a natural act for me. I mean, I, I certainly know a lot more. I mean, you know, I sat in front of my first Forbes WordPress moment, petrified. I don't do that anymore. You know, I know I had to do it. I don't get anxious when I submit my HBR pieces to my editor there anymore. I don't get nervous before podcasting. So, so I don't. I now I can reach out to people and get interviews. I do that with great excitement now. But I didn't even know what, what Twitter was. I think I have over ten thousand Twitter followers now. 
So there's less intimidation and more of a base level of muscle now. But honestly, David, I still don't know that I know how to use the platform and leverage the platform and make it do what I want it to do. I still feel like I feel like I now know what I don't know, right? And so I feel like I, I just am getting started. Well, to be fair, with the way the technology advances, I think we're all constantly learning and it's all constantly evolving. It's a great point, David. She, she even said when I, I was sort of lamenting and bitching about, I just feel like I'm so late. She goes, we're all late. We all should have been on LinkedIn in 1998. We all should have been on Twitter in 2002. We're all late to the party. Get over it. <laughs> Are you willing to share the name of your coach? Because I don't believe you have yet. So I did. It was Dory, Dory Clark. Okay. So that's your coach. I see. When you asked for books, that's who came to mind. But yeah, she, she, she also happens to be my coach. But I can heartily recommend her. She has great online courses. She's doing a mastermind course now in New York City. When you just read about her, she's one of the most, beyond being brilliant, she's just incredibly generous and kind. And if you want to be a thought leader, if you want to have somebody in your corner to help you find your voice in the world, she's the person you want in your corner. What about mentors? Have you had success with that in terms of building your career? So early on, in fact, in my second TED Talk in Boston last week, I talked about my mentor. She's been my mentor and friend for 30 years. She's in her late 70s now, and she's still a firecracker. And she's who recruited me into the program I taught at Fordham. It was her program. She has been a powerful force in my life. And without her guiding hand on my shoulder and her foot up my ass when needed, I would have never come where I came. But from the very beginning of my career in the corporate world, she has been a force for change in my life. So I think we all need to be mentors too, right? We all need to give back. And so I have lots of folks in my life that I, in fact, I'm leaving when I leave here, I'm going to you down at University of Washington to have lunch with a couple of foreign exchange students who just arrived from this country. <laughs> my wife and I were leaving Amsterdam from our vacation, and the guy that was helping us with our bags said, oh, my brother just went to Seattle. I said, oh, really? He, he, he just arrived. And my son had just moved to New York to go to school there. And I, oh, as a dad, you think, gosh, you hope somebody befriends him. I said, well, give me your brother's name. And so I reached out to him, and I, we've been having lunch together. He's new here, and today he's bringing a bunch of friends because they all want to meet. And so I'm going to go hang out and give back a little bit. I think it's important that we find people in our pathway to contribute to their development and make successful. I notice you're doing that face-to-face -face as well. A lot of people seem to rely almost exclusively on digital means in terms of reaching out to people. But I, th I think there's an added value to the face-to-face -face communication. Well, it's just nice to, have, to share a meal or a coffee or a beer when you can. You know, this is great. I can, you and I can see each other. So it's nice when you can't do that. But I do think that when you can hang out with somebody personally, it does make a difference. So I'd love to ask you some questions about how you launched your company, Navalent, and what it does. And it's become a big thing in your life, and you, you, you started it from nothing. So I'm really curious how that, how that came about. The founders and I were at a bigger firm in New York City. So people who do organizational work, you know, systems change, are passionate about it. We love this work. And we were all very fortunate to work at the sort of the premier Rolls-Royce firm in this field in New York City. And when that firm got sold to a bigger firm, it changed, right? Now you're part of a bigger machine and it's just about revenue and about growing and, a, and it's not about caring about the change you're curating. And I think we all got sad about that. You know, we felt like, gosh, this is not what we signed up for. When we, when we set out to train ourselves for this career, we really cared about having an impact and making a difference and really leading big change for lots and lots of people who needed it. So we thought, well, we can still have the dream. We just can't have it here anymore. We can do this on our own. And so naively, <laughs> we set out in 2004 to begin this community. And we realized that you know, it grew because we realized that to have the impact we wanted to have, it needed to be more than three of us. And so you know, we've, added, we've added and expanded over the 13 years we've been around, but it's now a wonderful firm. And we, we've taken the, I think we've taken the field further. We've added some new dimensions of understanding of how human beings 
both individually and in community experience change or initiate change or avoid bad change. And it's been a marvelous journey. There's still We're still learning. There's still things we're not good at yet. Every small boutique firm has a, their own element of the cobbler's kids have no shoes. For us, creating change in a change management firm is not always easy. <laughs> But we're learning, and, and, I, and I think one of the, you know, if your listeners come to our website and watch our videos, there's a video that talks about who we are to ourselves, and my partner, Mindy, uses a really important line. She says, we love our work, and we love each other, and because we love each other, it changes the work. That's very important, and a lot of people, I think, with the entrepreneurial spirit of wanting to start a new business, they, they want to venture off on their own, but you, you've found the value of really starting with a team built in. Don't you marvel, David, at all the people who want to go off and be you know, solopreneurs, entrepreneurs, and they all say, I want to feel something, part of something bigger than myself. Well, how are you going to do that by yourself? I understand. It makes me very sad that we've written off organizations at scale as being horrible places to work. And yes, it used to be that the big companies of the world, like IBM or you know whatever, have become the employers of last resort. And that's sad to me because I think organizations at scale can do things that small companies can't. If you look in the, in the ranks of the B Corp, they're doing phenomenal things, you know, and they're growing rapidly and they're doing phenomenal things in the world. And I, I think not everybody's cut out to be a solopreneur or an entrepreneur. Not everybody's cut out to do the very difficult, disruptive, anxiety-producing journey of starting something, but they make great members of other teams. And I think we have to not give up on community and organization. We have to not give up on, yeah, you're going to get a bunch of dysfunction. You put four walls on a roof and fill it up with people, you're going to get dysfunction. But, you know, that's just part of life. It doesn't have to be toxic, right? Just that's part of being human. Well, you've not only uh, started a business with other people, you're one of the one of the few authors I've had on the show who've co-authored a lot of the books that you've worked with. And that's an interesting process by itself. <laughs> I'm really curious how that came about. You seem to be finding all the hot button questions. I love it. So one of my very first books, I still didn't know how to write. I wanted to learn how to use my voice that way. So my mentor, Toby, took on the task of co-writing that book with me. We, we, we pitched this book and we'd done this research and finally a, a, you know, a decent business publisher in New York City picked us up and gave us an offer. We went down to the publisher to sign it, our contract, and I'm all like giddy excited and you know, I'm going on. We're walking out of the publisher in Times Square, walking across Times Square Street and I'm going on and on and on. And she, she turns to me and she stops. She takes me by the shirt and says, do you understand that we actually now have to write the fucking book? <laughs> I'm like, yeah, so what? So anyway, but it was a phenomenal experience to have somebody with me experienced a thought, you know, someone thoughtful who understood how to do research and how to write and express ideas. And I learned a ton in that experience. Going forward then, for me, I understood that co-authoring was a way to help other people find their voice. So all of the places where I have a co-author are places where I reached out a hand to say, okay, so you want to learn how to write? Come join me on this product and help find your voice for me. It is a it can be a very difficult process, but it's not just a blending different writing styles, but it's also the anxiety of a first-time author, the frustration of a first-time author who doesn't want to learn, doesn't want to learn, wants your help, doesn't want your help. But for me, those were times when I wanted to say, I understand you know, if you have a passion or a dream. Oh, somebody at one point said, I want to write a book, but it's a whole lot different. So th this last year, I actually ran a writing studio in, in Seattle here for first-time authors who had just gotten their book contract but had no idea what to do. A book is not written, it's built. People don't just start on a blank page in a Word document and just start and then go to the end. No book is written that way, and it shouldn't be. And so how to construct and build a book, how to build the spine of, a, of an outline, how to build the pathway, how to build your research, how to be a disciplined thought leader, not a lazy one. It wasn't a studio on how to write. It was how to write, a, how to write your first book. And I loved having those young leaders there. We spent a whole year together every Saturday and just – 
talking through their processes and I'd do edits and I'd help because I care. I care that other people – we don't need any – I mean to your point before about how much noise out there. We don't need any more crap. We, don't, we have plenty of crap. The world publishes you know, several million books a year, you know, 300,000 alone in my field. We don't need any more dribble. But there are plenty of good ideas and good thinkers out there. We need them to come to life, but a lot of those ideas don't get heard or seen because the ideas are born and die in the heads of the people who have them. Well, do you have any tips for people about how to take that ultimate solo practice of writing and make it into something that can be shared collaboratively? There are joint writing groups. Somewhere out there, there is somebody else who's, as much as we like to think that our ideas are completely unique, has had your idea who wants to think about it and go have a thought partner, go create a think tank or a think lab and just throw things on the wall and brainstorm and, and, and let other people refine your ideas. Let other people kick the tires on your thinking. It's good to be refined by the others and, and then offer the same in return and see what happens. Writing a book is at first a divergent process before it's a convergent process. And too many people get that backwards. They converge first and then they diverge when they write. And it's, then, then they, you get the first draft of the manuscript. And, you, and I can't tell you how many times I've said to somebody, this is like six books. You know, which one do you want to write? <laughs> and so, you know, you have to help them know when to divert, where to cast in it, and then how to converge and stay focused and disciplined on the path they set out. It's not easy. And again, it, it's that broad thinking that needs to be focused sometimes by an objective outside source. Yep. Oh, and don't wait for your editor at a publisher to do it because it's too late. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, that's a different type of relationship entirely. So you're curating your audience and I've got an audience of folks out here. Which of them are the people that you're trying to reach out to? Gosh, so I think if you're a leader looking for help leading change, if you're a leader of a small startup or a big organization or a business unit or a function and you are looking at the year ahead and you're wondering how to get from A to B and it's, it looks like it's going to be a little bit turbulent and you're not quite sure how to make that journey, I think we can help. Cool. And how can people find you? So come visit us at www.navalent.com. We got a magazine we publish quarterly on leadership and organizational and change and personal development stuff. If you come to navalin.com slash transformation, we have a free ebook for you on how to lead transformation. And it's our sort of our approach to how we think about change in individuals and communities. I'm at Twitter at Ron Carucci, and I'm, I'm also on LinkedIn. And you can find me now on YouTube. I'm at TEDx. So come keep the conversation going. We'd love to keep chatting. Well, Ron, you've got a great blog out there. You've got the videos. And there were so many different paths I could have taken this interview on. But there's so much out there that people can discover by exploring what you have to offer. Thank you so much for being on Hack the Process. David, it's been my pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. Are you glad you listened to this episode of Hack the Process? Then take an action now. Make a note about something you just heard and how it's going to help you as you hack your own process. And let me know about it. This has been M. David Green, your host for Hack the Process. You can tweet me at Hack the Process, leave a review for the show on iTunes, and visit hacktheprocess.com to check out the show notes for this episode and join our community of process hackers. Thanks for listening.